We're in uh, Genesis chapter 12 this morning. I'd like to start with an illustration. A number of years ago, I have a, I had a friend who his wife had left him and um, her behavior wasn't very Christ-like. And, um, you know, you can imagine, um, especially those that have suffered through divorce, how sometimes they are not uh, always the best circumstances to go through and not everybody always responds in a Christ-like fashion and and so you get bitterness and anger and infighting sometimes and um, through this process it looked more and more like maybe she wasn't even saved because of some of the behavior and so this friend of mine, his heart was for his wife and praying for her salvation and other things and one of the things he did was he had proposed treating her in certain ways to try to make her life miserable, ultimately so that she might come to Christ. And as we talk through that, I'm like, dude, you're talking about sinning to make your soon-to-be ex-wife miserable. You want to be this agent of, of God, I guess, to try to make it really, really difficult in the hopes that somehow by making her miserable and making it difficult, that that might ultimately drive her to Christ. And so I counseled them against that, obviously. I said, no, that's kind of schemish. God doesn't need your help with all that. In fact, if anything, you ought to act like a believer yourself. Um, love her like Christ would love the church. And maybe through that, as Paul says, I believe it's in Romans, that the kindness of God will drive us towards repentance. Maybe you ought to take that approach. But he was, you know, I think he was on the fence with my counsel where, yeah, but if I do that, then she might just think everything's fine. I really want to, you know, be a thorn in her flesh to make her come to Jesus Christ. It's a bit of a scheme. Now, I'm not going to, you know, say that we all struggle with that. But have you ever found yourself maybe in a similar situation where maybe God kind of needs our help and so we maybe scheme a little bit or maybe we don't always think through what our behavior might be? Um, Again, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise hands because I'd probably have to raise my hand along with you and embarrass myself, so I won't do that. But we're going to look at a passage this morning where we sort of see that to some degree. We see some scheming, if you will, and it doesn't really end up well, um, and God has to ultimately intervene. And so let's go ahead and look at this. We're in um, um, Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read the first three verses or so. And what we'll see here is that Abraham devised a deceptive scheme to, I believe, ensure God's promises. That's the first point. The second point will be that ultimately it led to some unintended consequences and that ultimately God had to intervene to basically ensure that his promises would come. So let's look at the first part of that. Abraham devising this, I'm going to call it a deceptive scheme to ensure God's promises. Starting in verse 10, we see this, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went, or Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I, I know that you are a beautiful woman. So far, so good, right? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. 
Now there are two, I'm going to call them perceived or potentially perceived threats to the promises God made to Abraham that are revealed in this passage. And both of them provide a bit of a challenge to Abraham's faith. If you remember, God had made promises to Abraham. If we go back... Earlier, I won't have you turn there right now, but he's made these promises to Abraham that he would inherit all of the land and that ultimately he would have descendants, at least a seed that would lead to seeds, descendants who would ultimately take over the land, bless all of mankind as a result of that. And so God made that promise to Abraham back in chapter 12. And that was a pretty significant event because it took place in Shechem, which was smack dab in the middle of the land of Canaan. It was where a shrine, a Canaanite shrine was. And so here Abraham is with these great promises of God that he'll be given this land. He'll have many descendants. He'll become the, the father of many nations. And so that's what Abraham has been given. And here he is as he settles in the southern part of that land, waiting for God to now bring about this promise of a seed. But there's a problem that arises. And it's a severe famine that's in the land. It was so severe that Abraham and Sarai were forced to leave and head down to Egypt. So that's the, sort of the first threat. You know, the Lord takes him to Canaan didn't give Abraham any indication as to when he would fulfill this, just simply said, go, I'm going to give you this land, I'm going to give you a descendant. I think if it were me, I'd think, okay, the ball's rolling, I moved to Canaan, now I just wait and God's going to take care of this, it should be pretty soon here, but instead he's in the land of Canaan and there's this famine and it's so bad they can't survive. So now he actually has to leave the land. How would we respond to that if God had promised us something? He said, go to Canaan, I'm going to give it to you. And you get down there and then you go, what, I'm being booted? I have to leave now? I've got to head south because I can't. There's a famine here. How does that affect God's promises? I, I wonder, did he wonder why God had called him to Canaan? Why he traveled anywhere from 500 to 1,500 miles? We don't know exactly how far it was because we don't know where Ur was specifically, but at a minimum it was 500 miles. Max it was probably 1,500 miles or so. So did he wonder, why did God have me do this? Did he wonder if famine would screw up God's plans? Did he wonder if God had forgotten about his promises? He's in the land now and maybe God just plain forgot. Did it make him waver in his faith any, do you think? The Bible doesn't tell us specifically what Abraham was thinking, but we might have a clue in the fact that verse 10 simply says that he went down to sojourn in Egypt. Now that's an interesting word because it generally means to stay for a while. It's the noun form here, sojourner, refers to a foreigner or a temporary resident who is passing through the region. That's what the noun form means the verb form is used here in the passage. but So it, it appears that Abraham was thinking about it in a temporary sense. So he probably didn't think God had abandoned him. But he may have been thinking, what's God doing here? Many in this situation might have been tempted to think that God's promise wasn't going to be fulfilled. But it does appear that Abraham at least was thinking, well, I'm going to have to leave temporarily and come back. I'll go sojourn down there. I'll be a temporary resident down in Egypt as necessary but it appears that the intent was to return back up to the southern part of Canaan so that's the first perceived threat is that how would God fulfill this promise to the land if he has to leave the land at least temporarily the second threat was related to God's promise to bless Abraham and his descendants 
and make him into a great nation. Look at verses 11 through 13 again. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, See, now I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. And so the second perceived threat is that they might take his wife and kill him. And think about that for a minute. He's legitimately concerned that his life is going to be at risk going to Egypt. Well, if God had promised you that you'd have descendants and that you would inherit the land, but now you're thinking, but if I go down there, I'm going to die. How might that impact God's plan? And so we have this second, again, I'll call it a potential concern about God's plans. I want to be careful here. Um, there are two other passages that are similar to what happens here because what we see in this passage is Abraham basically tells Sarai, tell him you're my sister. Because if you tell him my sister, they'll probably let me live. Because they're not going to kill him to take Sarah because it's not his wife as far as they're concerned. There are two other passages that are very similar to this later on. Um, Abraham will deceive King Abimelech just like he deceives the Pharaoh here. But then also his son Isaac does the same thing in Genesis chapter 26. I believe it's also to Abimelech there, if I remember correct. Now, I'd love to be able to sanitize this for us. You know, try to explain what Abraham is really doing here and why somehow it's not a bad thing. Um, When you read what many others have written about this passage, some of them, in fact, uh, fair number of them accuse Abraham of being more concerned about his own life than Sarah's life others come right out and say and I saw this with one scholar Abraham threw Sarai under the bus I believe statements like that are a bit harsh um, and don't necessarily represent what took place but they don't obviously present Abraham in a good light here I mean look at what he says when the Egyptians see you, they'll kill you. They'll kill me because they'll say, this is my, or his wife. Jump down to verse 13. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me. So that it may go well with me because of you. And that I may live on account of you. So I really can't sanitize that for us. Because clearly, Abraham is thinking about his own life. Now, Almost everything we, we, we see written about Abraham is about his faith. The, the scriptures have a tendency to do that, meaning that they will present some of the um, heroes of the faith, sometimes in the best light. But the scriptures don't shy away from pointing out their failures. We see that with David, don't we? But then when New Testament writers talk about David, they don't really usually talk about his failures. When the New Testament talks about Abraham, it doesn't talk about his failures. And so there is, again, I hate the word sanitize, but they focus on the positive attributes of those individuals. And so I want to be careful that I don't do what some scholars do, which is to just kind of trash Abraham here and say he's only concerned about his own life, you know, and how can he do this to his wife, you know? I suspect that there's probably that part of it here because he does show a concern for his own life. But I believe it's also possible that he was concerned about God fulfilling his promise. In other words, how could God make these promises to me 
And yet my life is in danger. And one of the things we have to keep in mind with this ancient Near Eastern culture that Abraham was raised in is that their gods, while they were sort of powerful, generally needed man's help. You cooperated with your gods to help them accomplish what needed to be accomplished. So it was this interesting mix of that's a god, it's a supernatural being, but he needs my help too. And personally, I wonder, and again, I'm not going to, there's that times where we speculate some, but remember, Abraham was raised in that culture. That's what he would have understood about the gods of his culture. And so he was 70 some years old when God reached down and spoke to him the first time. And we have to remember that much like when we come to Christ, our picture of who God is changes and grows and matures the more we learn about him. And I wonder at this point in Abraham's life, if he really fully understood God's complete sovereignty and that God didn't need his help to accomplish certain things. He had known the Lord here for how many years? We're not always given the exact timetable. And so what I'm going to propose, and again it's purely speculative here, that this wasn't purely about his own life. That Abraham is purely doing what we oftentimes do and think that God needs my help. How do I cooperate with this? And so he thinks to himself, okay, I'm going down to Egypt. I know what Egypt is like. Yes, they probably will look at my wife Sarai and they probably will kill her or kill me to take her. How do I prevent that from happening and how does that fit into God's plan? If I die, God can't fulfill his promise. God cannot give me descendants. God cannot give me the land. Everything God has promised me is gone. So what's the smart thing to do? What's the sane thing to do? And there are times, I think, where we do that. I had a friend challenge me one time about, since it's wrong to kill. In fact, I had this conversation with Kimberly two days ago. Somebody comes to my house, threatens my wife and kids. Okay? Am I going to lie to that individual? They're not here? You better believe I would probably do everything I could to deceive this individual to protect my family. But that's lying. How could you lie? I think God's going to understand that I'm trying to protect my wife and kids. What about if that individual has a gun and threatens my life and my family's life? If I happen to be a gun owner, would I use that weapon myself to take that individual's life? You better believe I would. If it involves protecting my family, I will do what's necessary. Okay? Now, not everybody's going to agree with that. Some would say, well, I'm going to lay down my life and let them walk in and... Just trust the Lord. I'm not going to condemn you for that. I just don't agree with it necessarily. The Old Testament makes provisions for self-defense. Okay? The idea of Jesus saying, you know, if they slap you on your cheek, turn your cheek the other way. He doesn't say, if they threaten your life and they want to kill you, just go ahead and let them do it. Now, get in the New Testament with Paul and what he does with, you know, the opposition and the threats that were against his life and what Jesus did. Okay, we've got to work those things out, right? So you've got to figure out what's right. So we do that in our head, don't we? We kind of try to figure out what's the smart thing for me to do here. And I wonder if Abraham, as he's looking at this here, is just thinking through, my life's in danger, what's the best way to solve that, and how does it fit into God's plan to ensure that God's plans and purposes can still come to fruition.
I don't think that's an unreasonable assumption. But again, I will tell you that is an assumption. If you read the text here and you say, nope, he's just throwing her under the bus, I'm not going to argue with you. I don't agree with that. That's not the Abraham we see. He clearly loves Sarai. I don't believe he would throw her under the bus. I don't think he believed that there was any danger to Sarai. And part of that is because of the culture again. Look at what happens. As they approached Egypt, he's concerned. So he basically tells a half-truth. Genesis 20 tells us that Sarai was indeed his half-sister. Okay, So he didn't really ask her to lie. He just conveniently had her not share the full truth. And you see that when he is dealing with Abimelech. Abimelech says, what did you do? He's like, well, I didn't really lie. She is my sister. And I did say she's my sister because she's my half-sister. I just left out the other part that she's my wife. Okay? So he wasn't completely honest there. I don't blame him for that. We also learn from Genesis 20 that this scheme to deceive the Pharaoh wasn't something he did on the spot. We're basically told in Genesis 20 that it was something he thought of before he ever left Ur. So he knew what he was going to do when he went down to Egypt. He had a plan, which was, we're going to have you tell them, you're my sister, not my wife. Now, one of the things we have to also understand about this culture here is that, generally speaking, a father, if somebody wanted to take a wife, they would approach the father and they would negotiate. Well, if the father wasn't around, then a brother would negotiate. And it's likely that what Abraham thought here was, when we go down there, I'll tell them, you're my sister. They'll have to negotiate with me, and all i got to do is fend them off until we can go back north. Remember, they're sojourning. And so he very likely probably didn't think that the Egyptians would take her if I tell her you're my sister. Because they've got to talk to me. I've got to negotiate. We've got to, you know, I've got to be the one that agrees and gives you as a wife to somebody. So he thought he was probably well in control of the situation. So again, he's not throwing her under the bus. He's not thinking that they're going to take her as their wife. He's really thinking, this is the way I protect my life. I'm not giving up my wife because that will never happen. Because I won't allow it to happen. I'm not going to negotiate and give away Sarai as my sister. Completely under control. He's got it all figured out. So what do we... When we look at this here, um, the takeaway, I think, as we look at what Abraham's doing here is this. When we devise our own schemes, or I'm going to call it a deceptive scheme here because it was somewhat deceptive. And again, I want to be careful that when I say deceptive, I simply mean he wasn't completely honest. He didn't just go in and say, hey, look, she's my wife, don't touch her. I'm not suggesting you should have done that. But there is some deception in there. And sometimes I'll get in trouble for this, I'm sure. But in the Old Testament, there are times where deception is allowed. Times of war, for instance. You hide what you're going to do from your enemies. You sometimes lie to your enemies. It's permitted in the Old Testament under certain circumstances. Maybe that's the case here. But what we see is that he devised this scheme to bring about some result, I believe, to help facilitate what God had promised to him. But you wonder if that ultimately is revealing a lack of faith. Did Abraham just not think that God could still fulfill his promise unless he came up with this scheme? I'm going to be real careful there. I don't know. Because again, somebody comes to my house, threatens my family, and if I deceive them, they're not here. 
Is it because I lack faith? I could just simply say, I'll just be honest and I'll trust the Lord and the Lord will do it. Some would say that's faith. See the little interesting dilemma here? You see why I'm trying to walk carefully here? But there certainly are times where we come up with schemes and we don't need to because we somehow think it fits into God's plan much like the individual that I shared with earlier in the message. He clearly thought, hmm, he's got this scheme in his head. God needs my help because if I don't do it, then she might not come to faith. But if I get involved, if I just help God out here, and the problem with that is when it involves sin and other things, um, it doesn't honor God and it does show a lack of faith. Now, I'm going to have to leave you to determine when that is. As I look at this story with Abraham, I do wonder, because there are periods, we'll see this in, in, as we go through this story with Abraham, there are times where he struggles in his faith. There are times where it looks like he's just not trusting the Lord to do what the Lord does. One thing comes to mind is when he does this again with Abimelech, he didn't apparently learn his lesson here, so he does it again with Abimelech. You would have thought he would have gone, hmm, God took care of the last time. I don't need to do it again, but he does it again. Then you have the situation with Hagar, where the Lord had promised him a seed, and he uses a tradition, a custom that was common in the ancient Near East and he, instead of waiting on the Lord to provide what the Lord said he would do through his wife what he does instead is he goes and he sleeps with Hagar because his wife says here God's closed my womb, go ahead and take my maid make a baby that way, we're all good, God's plan comes to fruition, we're all good to go 15 years later after that happens the Lord says, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah and he laughs Oh, come on, just, how about Ishmael? You know, he's 15 now, let's just use him. So even then, Abraham seemed to lack the faith that was necessary. And so again, we have this interesting dynamic. He's a faithful man, he's praised for his faith in the, in the New Testament, but yet there were times where he struggled. And that's a common theme in the Old Testament. Even David struggled. And so... Again, I think our takeaway with this is we have to be very careful because there are those times where if we're thinking that somehow I need to help God out, we come up with these schemes, we're going to see what often happens with that, which is our second point here, which is there can be unintended consequences for that. And so again, this is a little muddy here because I don't really know for sure what's going on in Abraham's head. I think he's trying to do what he thought was reasonable and right and may very well have been thinking about not just his own life but how do I ensure that God's promises will still come true he's promised me all these things but I had to leave the land even though he promised it to me and now my life's in danger how do I ensure that my life isn't taken and that God is able to fulfill all the promises that he made to me I think there's times where maybe we do that where sometimes we think we have to help God out and we come up with schemes to do it And sometimes those schemes involve sin. Sometimes they're just a lack of faith. So what happens here? Abraham's scheme ultimately has unintended consequences. He couldn't control everything. And I don't believe it turned out the way that he thought it would turn out. Look at verses 14 through 16. It came about when Abraham came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Well, he anticipated that. He thought, they're going to say you're beautiful. So they'll kill me and take you as... The Egyptians took matters like this very seriously. To take another man's wife was adultery. Even the Egyptians understood that to some degree. And how do you get around that? 
You kill a husband. It's not adultery anymore. So Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into the Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abraham well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So when Abraham comes into the land, he has this scheme that he's going to use to try to protect his own life and probably again ensure that God's promises would be maintained. But one of the unintended consequences was that Sarah ended up in the Pharaoh's harem. I don't think he banked on... I mean, what are the chances? You go to Egypt with who knows how many people. Remember we said that it could have been 300,000 to a, you know, 3 million people living on the earth at this time. Um, Egypt was an established kingdom at this point. We don't know how big it was. But what are the chances you show up in Egypt and the Pharaoh's own people see Sarah instead of just another Egyptian? It's likely that if just another Egyptian saw her, he could have fended that off. No, no, she's not interested. I'm not interested in negotiating here. You can't have my sister as your wife. Sorry. We're only here temporarily. And with a regular Egyptian, regular citizen, that might have worked. But when the Pharaoh's officials come to you and want her, that's a little bit more difficult. And so I don't believe that he expected that to happen. And so the Pharaoh's officials come to him and ultimately take her as the wife for the Pharaoh. Now, in return, um, Pharaoh actually is very good to Abram here. Obviously, he doesn't take his life because they don't think he's the husband. And instead, they reward him fairly handsomely. Sheep and goats and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. He leaves Egypt fairly wealthy, we're told. Um, We might struggle with that a little bit because it almost appears like the Lord blessed Abraham for what he did here. I would argue that he blessed Abraham in spite of what Abraham did. I've known people who have done sinful things and then they say, but look at the look at the results. It all worked for good anyway, so how could that be wrong? I was blessed even though I did the wrong thing and they somehow then use that to justify their behavior I've been reading through this this book I've shared it with some of you um, by a guy named Tim Alberta he was raised with a, in a Christian home an evangelical home a conservative church up in I believe Minnesota his dad was a pastor um, but he has written a book recently it's a second book it's called The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory it looks at does a deep dive about a six year investigation into the evangelical church and our political um, involvement And to be real honest, he doesn't have a lot of positive things to say about it. Um, He talks about a lot of the sin and the deceit and other things that have happened by a lot of evangelical leaders um, because the ends justify the means. And oftentimes you see this repetitive um, framework, which is that, ah, we know what we're doing, but look at the results. The results justify, or the ends justifies the means and that's not the case now I'm not saying he's right or wrong in his assessment it's been a very challenging book but there are some things that he points out where clearly some of these leaders have he's got the recordings with, in his interviews with them he's got their written words where they've come right out and said but the ends justify the means one of the quotes was we need a barbarian to fight the barbarians and Christians can't be barbarians because we're held to a different standard so as long as we don't do it we can cozy up with those who do. 
because the ends justify the means. And so it's been this rather challenging book, but that's the reality of it is that the ends don't justify the means. And so we can't look at Abraham and say, well, he was blessed. God might have been happy with his behavior. Not necessarily. Not necessarily because sometimes God does things in spite of us. He did tell Abraham he would bless him. He clearly is blessed in spite of maybe some instances where his faith wasn't really all that strong. And so the first unintended consequence here is that Sarah ends up in the Pharaoh's harem. He probably didn't bank on that. The second unintended consequence is that Abraham's actions seemingly put God's promises in jeopardy. The very thing he may have been trying to avoid now is a real possibility. Why? His wife is now taken. He's a 75-year-old man or thereabouts and now no longer has his wife. How is he going to get his wife back from the Pharaoh? Does he think he's going to be able to march right in there and say, oops, I lied to you, she really is my wife and now they're not going to take his life? If anything, they'd probably look at them and go, wow, you deceived us? And so in some respects, at least from a human perspective, he actually put God's promise in jeopardy. Because now Sarah, his wife, the one he should have the descendant with, is now with Pharaoh and he has no wife. I don't think he was banking on that. I wonder what was going through his head. Was he wondering, well, I was supposed to be here temporarily when the famine's done in Canaan. I was going to go back, but now how do I get Sarah? Do I you know, devise some rescue plan? And I don't know what's going through his head. The scripture doesn't tell us. But the Lord had promised him descendants, had promised to make him a great nation. All of that should have come through Sarai, his wife. But based on what we see now, this unintended consequence is it really does look like God's plan is in jeopardy. I think about what this means for us from a takeaway perspective. When we take matters into our own hands instead of simply relying on the Lord by faith and trust, there can be unintended consequences. I think about Kimberly when, when the kids were younger. I think I might have shared this story before. Um, Katie had been knocking over some lamps in the house, and we don't know what was driving her to do it. We walk into the family room, we have those lamps, you know, the big stand up lamps with a shade on it, and be down in the middle of the floor, you know? So we pick it up, and Kimberly would say, I don't know she, why she's doing this. She's knocking over the lamps. So we'd go and we'd ask Katie about it. She'd go, oh, I didn't do it. And we assumed she was lying because we had an eyewitness in Kimberly. And um, so we would, you know, the first time we warned her, don't knock over the lamps. But then the next time, she got a spanking for it. Okay? And this kept going on. And we're just puzzled by this. Until one day, Kimberly told us, I need to share something with you. Um... I've been the one knocking over the lamps. I said, why? Well, because I know that we need to be disciplined. The Lord's plan is that children be disciplined by their parents because it builds character and it, and it teaches us about God and about authority. So you guys do that with me. But Katie's so good... I thought that she needs to be disciplined too, so I've been knocking over the lamps and blaming Katie so that she could benefit from the discipline you would give her. I mean, that's reasonable, right? I mean, that makes sense, right? 
sisterly. I mean, really the motivation was not I want to get my sister in trouble, but rather discipline is good. And Kimberly was always somebody who understood discipline. I mean, she would thank us at times for saying, I, I'm glad that you guys just don't let me get it. I'm glad that I live in this house where my parents understand discipline. And to this day, you know, she's 21, still lives at home, and she will tell us, I am so glad for how we were raised. She just simply wanted to share that with her sister. Now, the unintended consequences? What do you think happened to Kimberly at that moment? She didn't plan on that. She didn't plan on mom and dad going, oh, wait a minute. And now Kimberly was the one who was being disciplined. And I can tell you that discipline wasn't necessarily comfortable because it involved more than just saying, I shouldn't have done that. Go about your business. She knew what she was doing was deceptive and lying. She just sort of, you know, thought she would help God out there and benefit Katie to some degree. And so the unintended consequences there was Katie got disciplined for something she wasn't doing. We apparently as parents didn't do enough to really discover what was going on. And so we had mistakenly unrightly just or uh, unrightly disciplined somebody who didn't need to be disciplined now we didn't know but could we have done more as parents maybe should i have trusted katie i mean katie you know kimberly never it was weird because she she almost never lied that was one of the instances where she was lying but usually if you asked her if she did something she'd just tell you you know she's got this black and white you know you just tell the truth Katie was a little bit more loosey-goosey with things and wasn't always the honest one. And so there was, you know, do we trust her? Do we trust a daughter who doesn't lie and trust the daughter who does? Or, you know, but the unintended consequence is there. Somebody got disciplined that shouldn't have been disciplined. The other unintended consequence there was Kimberly now gets disciplined for doing what she thought she was doing to help God out and help Katie out. And help the parents do their job in disciplining their kids because Katie wasn't getting enough discipline, apparently. So when we take matters into our own hand like that, when we think we're trying to help out or whatever, there can be unintended consequences. We are not sovereign, which means when we take things into our own hands, we cannot be assured that they're going to work out the way that we intend. They're not going to necessarily have the result that we really think we ought to have. But God is sovereign, which means that when we trust Him, things will turn out exactly as He intends. Again, I go back to this book I've been reading, and so much of what I'm seeing in the book reminds me of my own experiences, because when I was in college, I started interning at one of the largest Christian radio stations in the nation. Um, Christian, uh, I think, stations here in general, I'll give you an idea here, um, what determines the coverage area of a radio signal is tower height this one comes to FM tower height and power transmitter power okay and in the state of Wisconsin you can have a 2,000 foot antenna on a 100,000 watt station I think in Ohio the limit is only 50,000 watts now in Wisconsin you put a 2,000 foot antenna up and a 100,000 watt transmitter and you can push that signal into five states okay and so this station was a Christian station, one of the most sophisticated stations in the nation. It had the first fully AM, or fully stereo AM station, something you don't even see today, an AM signal with stereo on it. 
first station in the nation. Not only that, it was the first fully automated radio station where there's no DJ sitting there. But you would swear in listening to it, there was a DJ sitting there, bank of wall, wall of 30 or 40 tape decks all playing the music, all queued up on a computer, running all of that to where it sounds like there's somebody real sitting there. This was a sophisticated station. So I got the opportunity to intern there and then work there. And part of my job was not just to be a DJ, but also, at the FM side, but also to do political broadcasts and interview presidential candidates. So I got to talk with these folks and edit, video, or edit their, their audio and the recordings we did. And it was all when the moral majority and Jerry Falwell's influence was hitting the evangelical church where they were recruiting Christians all over the nation to get into politics. And it's interesting because some of the conversations, even back then that I had with some of these political leaders in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I even struggled a little bit sometimes with the things they were doing because I thought, this doesn't feel or look very Christ-like. And I was told, don't worry about it because we need more Christians in government. I agreed with that. But even back then, I struggled with some of the scheming, some of the deception. And I'm not accusing everybody of that. I'm simply saying that when I read this book now, and he talks about a lot of this stuff, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember this. And I remember what this was like. And so the reason I bring this up is because there have been a, there have been a lot of unintended consequences within evangelicalism with politics and what's happened. Some things that they didn't expect would happen that have been happening within evangelical churches. The divisiveness, the infighting, and some of that. Churches have literally been destroyed, not because of bad theology, but purely over political opinions. It's been extremely divisive in the church, and I've seen it. You've heard me from the pulpit here talk about the chaos sometimes in the evangelical church in America here, and how many are not preaching the gospel anymore. Um, there's been some pretty nasty unintended consequences of some of this and I won't go into any details because again it's a challenging read for me much of what he says is right I don't necessarily agree with everything but it's been a challenge because I'm reading through it from the perspective of wow look at all the unintended consequences look at what this has done to the evangelical church in, in America it's not very pretty in many respects and so there can be unintended consequences Sometimes when we scheme or do things that maybe involve a certain lack of trust. And again, there's a fine line sometimes between what we do and how we do it and when it involves a lack of faith and when it doesn't involve a lack of faith. I'm somebody who believes that we ought to be involved with politics. I think we have a voice. But we need to do that with a Christian mindset, a tremendous amount of faith and trust in the Lord, and not scheme to try to accomplish what we think God wants us to accomplish, especially when it involves sin or other things. And I don't know who would share my opinion reading through this book. Um, I think many would be shocked by some of what is revealed in it. Again, I don't agree with everything, but there are things there that I know to be true. And again, I'm drawn back and I'm going, wow, the unintended consequences when we do that kind of stuff. And Abraham here certainly saw some unintended consequences. His wife gets taken. She's now part of the Pharaoh or Pharaoh's harem. And it looks like maybe God's plan really is in jeopardy. He might have thought he was saving that and maybe helping God to accomplish that. And he'd go back to Egypt or back to Canaan with his wife and all would be good because of his scheme. But now that really truly looks like it might be in jeopardy.
The third and final thing we see here is that ultimately God has to intervene. And God intervenes to ensure his promises. Look at verses 17 through 20. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Notice the stress there. Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. You notice how many times wife is mentioned in that passage? Remember, repetition in the scriptures is driving home a point. This was Abraham's wife. Abraham and Sarai's um, behavior put that in jeopardy. It put the Pharaoh in a position where he unknowingly took another man's wife. And even in Egyptian culture, that was a no-no. Now, we don't know how this, or how this Pharaoh found out. It's a, probably the Lord speaking to him like he did Abimelech. The Lord spoke directly to Abimelech when Abraham, Abraham does this a second time. So that might have been the case. The Lord might have spoken to the Pharaoh. And maybe the Sarai let it leak. And maybe something else came about. Maybe Abraham let it slip. Maybe he's talking to somebody and says, I think I might have screwed up. Um, my wife was taken by Pharaoh. And somehow that, I, we don't know. We just know the Pharaoh finds out. And again, the repetition of wife, 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 wife. And so, we're we're looking at this here, and the Lord actually has to intervene. Um, We have to be careful when we're dealing with subtleties in the biblical text. And there's some subtlety here. Abraham is shown to be a bit of a schemer, and he ultimately puts Sarai in danger. Um possibly derails God's plans and promise to him. But the contrast here and the subtlety is the contrast between the Pharaoh's response and what Abraham did. He unknowingly is led into sin. Remember, it doesn't look like in the text that he simply stole Sarai because Abraham is made wealthy, which suggests that what the Pharaoh did was compensated Abram for taking his sister which means there was likely a negotiation there. We don't really know for sure, but he didn't just take the sister and do... And that was the king's privilege and the pharaoh's privilege back then. They could do that. They could take anybody. To be, as long as he wasn't married, they could take anybody. But it appears the pharaoh was good to Abram. He was kind and generous to Abram. Um, and it appears he responded quickly and correctly to God's judgment. Immediately goes to, to Abram. And so we, we, we see this Pharaoh who wasn't called by God apparently doing all the right things and then you have Abram who did the wrong thing, apparently. And so how much we make of that? You know, it's interesting. We have to be careful with subtleties like this because you don't want to make too much of them. But it's almost as if as Moses records this account that he might be using Pharaoh's actions here as a subtle rebuke of Abram. It's not unusual to see that in the scriptures. I mean, think about that. Jesus himself said, and if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. So he used Gentile behaviors in some respects to shame believers who don't even do what the Gentiles do. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. But then he follows follows it up with, and a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. That was a subtle rebuke to an individual in the Corinthian church who had taken his father's wife. 
And so Paul rebukes him by saying, even the pagans don't do this. So I, I, as I read this, wonder what Moses' point here was, but there might be some subtle rebuke here where he uses the Pharaoh's behavior as a form of subtle rebuke of what we see to let us know that what Abraham did was not what he should have done here. And he contrasts that with the Pharaoh's behavior. And again, it's somewhat subtle, so we don't want to make too much of it. But what we clearly see here is that the Lord intervenes. Abram created this mess. And now the Lord has to intervene. The Lord has to go. Abram didn't go to the Pharaoh and say, you know, I screwed up. I should have let this happen. She really is my wife. The Lord had to do it. So the Lord goes to Pharaoh and rebukes the Pharaoh. Pretty severely, apparently. The Pharaoh responds just as he should. Returns Abram's wife. And then he escorts him out. Verse 20, Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away and his wife, again the word wife, and all that belonged to him. And so even that, the Pharaoh could have taken everything back he gave Abram and kicked him out poor. But he didn't. He even, when he kicked him out, when he escorted him out, he let Abram keep everything that he had given Abram, apparently in exchange for Sarai. So what's our takeaway with this? I would argue this, that throughout history God has continued to intervene in the affairs of men to accomplish and secure his promises even when we apparently screw it up. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you did something and God had to intervene and fix it? Never. Matt's back there. Never. Never happens. Right? Again, I don't want to embarrass myself, but yes, I have done things that I really knew I probably shouldn't have done, sometimes more strongly than others, because sometimes that, you know, you start to work through it in your head and you really kind of manipulate it enough to where you think you're doing the right thing and you really think it's, it's good. Hey, you know what? I'm just going to manipulate my, my, my soon-to-be ex-wife so that ultimately, you know, she'll be led to Christ. And that all sounds reasonable in my head. And yeah, I'm kind of walking that fine line between is it sin or is it not sin? You know, but, but, the, but if I do it, it might ultimately lead to her getting saved. And we kind of massage it a little bit so that we make ourselves feel good about it. And we ultimately think, oh, I'm doing the right thing here. And then after the fact, you kind of realize the conviction of the Holy Spirit kicks in and you go, Ugh. And God steps in and fixes what we broke. I think that's what we see here where the Lord wasn't about to let his promises to Abram be circumvented, prevented because of what Abram did. So the Lord intervenes. Why? Because his purpose and his plan is what it's all about. And it may have been that Abraham screwed that up a little bit, but God wasn't about to allow what Abraham did to prevent him from fulfilling his promises to Abram. And so the Lord intervenes. He talks to the Pharaoh, convinces the Pharaoh, give the wife back, take Abram back home. And by the way, let him keep the stuff you gave him. I told him I'd bless him. So that's what the Lord does. He intervenes. He did this in the garden with Adam and Eve, didn't he? We see what we call the first gospel, the proto-evangelum, right there in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve screwed it up for Every one of us. My daughter reminds me of that constantly. Katie, when it comes to her time of the month, has a terrible, terrible time. She's like my sister. What she suffers through every month with her time of the month is terrible. Kimberly, not so much. 
This is kind of like, yeah, it's an inconvenience. Yeah, a couple of Advil, I'm good to go. Katie is on her bed, hot packs on her, sweating through it. Okay? And they always say, thanks, Eve. You know, Adam and Eve screwed it up for everybody. And what does God do? He steps in in Genesis chapter 3 and makes a promise to Eve about the seed. We see it with Cain and Abel. What does God do with Cain? Puts a mark on his forehead, sends him out. Says, you know, they're going to seek to kill you, but I'm going to protect you. So he intervenes there. I think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and throughout their history. God had to intervene with them too, didn't he? There's many examples where God has to intervene with them as they screw things up. We see this even in the church today. How many times over the last 2,000 years have we seen the church in many parts of the world become apostate? And what does God do? Still has a remnant. He still intervenes. The church is still going to do what the church needs to do. You know, it's, all, it's interesting as I've been thinking through what, what Alberta's been saying in his book. He kind of sees things as from like two lenses. One is you either have a powerful, godly church in a nation that is established in some respects, living out many biblical principles. Or you have the direct opposite, which is a totally apostate church, um, and culture is totally collapsed and falling apart. And I look at it and say, no, there's a third option, and it's the one in between there, which is what Europe is, where you basically have a church that is apostate and almost useless, but there's not enough persecution to challenge it and to cause them to come out of that. Because he sort of, again, looks at things like there's a time in our history where the church was growing and it was doing what it was supposed to do, but the nation was healthy. And then there's the opposite, which is where, again, the church is being persecuted severely in a pagan, pagan culture, and it's thriving. The church is thriving. Culture might not be, but the church is. And I go, yeah, but America's not there. We're kind of becoming like Europe where the church is ineffective in many respects, but we're not being persecuted severely, so there's no growth either. That's almost more dangerous than the two ends, is it not? But yet we've seen how God intervenes. You know, I look at the United States, personally, I look at God's world, looking at Europe, going, okay, you guys screwed up, look at your church, you're all apostates, but I promised that I would build my church and what do you see come out of that? You see the United States come out of that. The greatest evangelistic nation in history. Much of the world, the gospel is brought to much of the world because of the work of the church in the United States. What did God do? He intervened. He basically looks at Europe and says, you're all apostates. You're not doing what you're supposed to. They were at one point. I mean, so much of our good Christian scholarship was born out of Europe until they became apostate. And what does God do? Raises up another. I'm convinced that if the church in the United States here becomes totally apostate, God will do it somewhere else. We already see in parts of Africa and other places where the church is growing and thriving in the worst of circumstances. Because God has promised. I'll fix what you broke. And so God has a habit of intervening when we sort of screw things up. So there's hope in that. Is there not? I look at Abraham here and I kind of wonder when he got back to Canaan if he kind of went, well, thank God he fixed that because I kind of mucked it up. You know, I could have handled that differently. Maybe I shouldn't have said she was my sister and should have just owned up and said, she's my wife and then talked to God and said, can you protect us? We need to go down to Egypt for the famine. Protect us while we're there, Lord. 
But I didn't do that, Lord, so thank you for intervening. Thank you for fixing what I broke. So there's a lesson in that for us, I think. First off, God doesn't really need our help when it involves scheming. He wants our help when it comes to doing what he said, is to live out our faith, to propagate the gospel, to make disciples of all nations by teaching it back. He wants our participation in that. He invited us into that. Jesus himself gave that as his command. What he doesn't need is for us scheming to help him do what he needs to do. And when we scheme, there are unintended consequences. Often sin. It often damages the church. It often damages our reputation. It impacts God's plan from that perspective. When a church thinks that it has to become more like the world to propagate the gospel, then you find out what you end up with is a very worldly church and it's not propagating the gospel. You go, yeah, that scheme you had about becoming more like the world to make the church attractive and you thought that by doing that you'd build a bigger church and, more, and then you find out that instead what you've made is a bunch of apostate Christians or weak Christians who don't share their faith. You screwed up. Your scheme didn't work out the way you thought, and now you've got this unintended consequence. Willow Creek, that's exactly what they discovered. Willow Creek with their whole seeker-sensitive model. The pastor, after 20 years of doing that, had his church commission a study to look at what had happened in their church because he said, boy, we've really built this big church, but all we've got now are a bunch of weak Christians. We haven't made any disciples. They actually published a study called Reveal, where they said, we screwed up. Our scheme, he didn't call it that, but our scheme, this new thing we wanted to do, we thought would be good for the church, has made us weak. But you know what? Instead of then going back and doing what the Bible says, they just came up with a different scheme. Didn't fix the problem. But like I said, they even admitted their scheme didn't work. But the one thing that we know for sure, that when we screw up, God intervenes to accomplish His purposes, Oftentimes what that involves on our behalf is confession, repentance, recognizing that what we did shouldn't have been done. It should be something that builds our faith and trust in him. This is the thing that's disappointing to me about Abraham here, and again, I want to be very careful, is that he did it again. He didn't learn his lesson. Now, that doesn't make him a bad person. I'm not trashing or throwing Abraham under the bus, because again, the New Testament paints him as a man of faith, and he was. But there were moments of weakness. Sometimes we're like Abraham and we don't learn our lesson. And so sometimes we will do it again. The hope is that we won't. So how you work that out in your own lives, I know that in my own lives, I am somebody who likes to be in control. I am somebody who thinks I know how to best do things all the time. And I will tell you this with the utmost of conviction that there are times where I scheme sometimes not really knowing I'm doing it because I convinced myself I was doing the right thing but then there are other times where I'm kind of walking that fence knowing and I can tell you I screw up and sometimes I need God to intervene maybe you're not like me maybe you are but thank God that when I do that that he intervenes and still accomplishes exactly what it is that he said he would accomplish And what that should do is cause us to step back and go, I I get it, God. Thanks for the lesson, but thanks for the encouragement that you're still in control, that you're still on the throne. Thanks for fixing my screw-ups. But then help me not to scheme again. Help me just to learn to trust and to rely on you. Amen?